0: One of the dangers when reading familiar passages in the life of Christ is precisely that they are familiar. Uh, Jesus, who remains ambiguous both to his friends and foes throughout the Gospels, uh, appears so clear to us when we read a text that instead of responding the way the crowd does, we typically have a mental, duh, But this text presents a unique opportunity as the crowd asks Jesus something that is common to all of us, a question that we have to ask Jesus, and we often ask Jesus, who exactly are you? This morning we will start by looking at that question that everyone must ask. The wording from the text is, who do you make yourself out to be? And then we must come to terms with Christ's answer in our response. So, what is the context in which John eight and this dialogue between Jesus and the crowd occurs? Um, going back into verse seven, and also in or chapter seven, and also in chapter eight, Jesus is teaching in the temple after a night, presumably praying on the Mount of Olives. This is immediately after the Feast of Booths and his teaching has inspired the Jewish leaders to begin to de- determine how to arrest and or kill Jesus on at least 3 different occasions in chapter 7 they are plotting on how to arrest or kill him Jesus has already been accused of having a demon and he's accused again here in the text in fact in the preceding verses he's actually responded to some of those accusations by distinguishing his father ...from the demonic father of the crowd that's criticizing him. Jesus has been mocked and accused of being from Galilee. And in this text, he's accused of being a Sumerian. Well, Christ is engaging with these accusations and thoughts... ...and that he is unworthy to speak of himself in the manner in which he's accustomed. And so this reaches the present fever pitch that Christ denies having a demon... He indicates that the crowd dishonors his father by dishonoring him, and he reflects on the glory given him by the father. All of this culminating in the very familiar, quote, I am. So let's look at the dialogue and rhetoric, starting in verse 48, that leads to that question, who are you? In verse 48, it's quite clear that the crowd has reached its limit. They are confused by how Jesus talks about himself, about how he talks about his relationship, God the Father. And so they resort to accusations in the forms of questions to discredit his speech and to provoke a response from him. And they get quite a response. They are inclined to two ways specifically to diminish Jesus in order to not listen to his words. They first seek to undermine his authority by pointing out where he came from. And the second way to undermine his authority is by assigning his words for harm. So look at this first one with me. Are you a Samaritan? Let me translate for you. Are you a foreign half-breed who does not have the right to tell us about the things of God? You see, the Samaritans were considered a cursed half-race that was not to be engaged with on any level. We've seen this earlier in this gospel— In John chapter 4, when Jesus has an encounter at a well with the Samaritan woman. And it shocks everybody, and I quote from verse 9, because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Calvin writes on this, The Jews reckoned the Samaritans to be apostates and corruptors of the law. And so Calvin writes of the crowd and their question, We see that with effrontery they curse him, As men are wont to do, when infuriated like enraged dogs, they cannot find anything else to say. If you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's categories of how we should respond or view Christ, whether liar, lunatic, or Lord, this would fall under the lunatic category. Today, sometimes when talking about Jesus, it sounds something like this oh, but he was speaking in a first-century context. Or, well, he was speaking from a misguided religious upbringing. I wonder what it would sound like if Jesus were to start his ministry today, in our day, here in Austin. Maybe the opening question would be a little playful. Are you from (laughs) (laughs) A&M? But I think it would move political pretty fast. Are you from California? (laughs) New York? And he definitely would hear what you and I have probably heard when we share our opinion about things. Well, aren't you from Austin? I doubt the world could ever run out of ways to diminish Jesus' words with this approach. But this isn't their only approach. They don't stop there. They ask him, well, don't you have a demon? Again, translating for you, Are you not possessed to speak lies against God the Father? Curiously, Jesus only responds to this accusation. The Samaritan one is beneath him. But this question brings not only his, but also the Father's honor and glory into account. And I think that's why he responds to it more directly. You see, the people are calling him a spreader of lies, a speaker of falsehood about the Father. This is C.S. Lewis's Liar. And Christ's answers put the intention of the question back on the crowd. They are dishonoring the Father by dishonoring him and his ministry. And so Christ resorts to emphasizing his knowing of the Father, his sharing in the glory of the Father, and his keeping of the Father's words in contrast to their relationship with God the Father and their lack of ability to keep Christ's words. And you can store that line away because Christ's movement from keep my words and you shall not see death to I keep his words is not incidental. You can feel the tension building when the crowd again claims that Jesus has a demon because since Abraham and the prophets died... How on earth could he claim that his words could keep them from death? The crowd is taking this as a slight, that Christ's words are greater and more powerful than their ancestors, the people that they look up to, the people of their book. They also balk at the offer Christ puts before them. They are unprepared for the answer that Jesus is about to give them but they ask the question, who do you make yourself out to be? If we're honest, we all ask this question of Christ. We try to probe if he comes from the right place. Does he say the right things? Does he affirm the things we already affirm or want him to affirm? Is he making himself more important than the people and things that we appreciate and hold dear? Sometimes we ask because we doubt what he promises. We read the words of scripture and we look at our lives and we ask, who are you? Or maybe something closer to, can you really deliver on what you promised? It sounds crazy. Ultimately, the question, who are you, relates not only to who Jesus is, but what he does. And his final answer to this question, I am, addresses both. But it's worth noting that Jesus' preliminary answer isn't I am. It's actually something more like, I make nothing of myself. My Father is making this of me. Throughout the book of John, Jesus always speaks humbly of his relationship to the Father. And here in these verses, the Father is precisely the one the judge who is going and looking for the glory that he can give to the Son. The God of the Old Testament who would not share his glory with another is actively working to bring glory to Jesus Christ the Son. So his answer, his answer grows into an affirmation of his knowledge of the Father. He's not the liar, the accusation of having a demon. In fact, the crowd is the liar because they do not actually know the Father. Further, the person that they predominantly call the Father, Abraham, actually rejoiced to see the day of Jesus. What does Jesus mean when he says this? The early church fathers saw this as an indication that the eternal Logos, the second person of the Trinity, revealed himself to Abraham in Theophanies. Recall Abraham having and serving a meal with three individuals, messengers from God. But Calvin says that day in this text is the time of Christ's kingdom, when he appeared in the world clothed with flesh to fulfill the office of Redeemer. Irenaeus, deviating from his fellow church fathers, spoke of Abraham as a prophet who learned from the word of the Lord and believed him. Abraham saw somehow, though veiled, that the God who had revealed himself would eventually need to do something drastic to fulfill his promises. This will help us expand what Christ means when answering, I am. For his answer is not only about his eternal existence, but his redemptive relationship with Abraham and ultimately with us. So this final answer, I am, that Jesus Christ gives to the crowd is both ontological, it relates to who he is in his existence, and it is a description of his character. He addresses his relationship to Abraham chronologically, but also covenantally. So first, Christ, by calling himself I am, speaks to his eternal existence and oneness With God the Father. This name, I Am, comes from the early stories in Exodus in which the people of uh, Israel are in Egypt under bondage. They're groaning, and the Lord hears them and remembers his covenant. He stirs up a rescue mission through Moses, and before sending Moses to the people in Egypt, this is what he says Then Moses said to God, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. By referring to himself as I am, Christ established his eternal coexistence with God the Father. And the entire Gospel of John is replete with familiar phrases that you know as well as I to this regard I and the Father are one. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Any answer to the question, who do you make yourself out to be, must arrive at this conclusion. Jesus is the incarnate, eternal Son, the same in substance with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, equal in power and glory the answer is not liar, it is not lunatic, it is Lord. And naturally, the crowd, being very familiar with the Exodus story, is scandalized. They now, not merely the rulers, seek to kill Jesus. A good stoning would be proper for blasphemy under the law. But this isn't blasphemy. And of the crowd, Calvin wrote, they have no ears to know the cause, but they have hands ready to commit murder. For me, in a source of literary irony, the savior of the world who had just fully revealed himself has to completely hide himself to escape the temple and their willingness to stone him. Again, quoting Calvin, after having banished Christ, they retained possession of the outward temple only. Isn't it still the case that the testimony of Jesus Christ scandalizes? The world will gladly accept any other answer than I am. As the author of the gospel said earlier in John chapter 1, verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. But if this is all Jesus' answer conveys to us, it would leave us in the story In darkness, with the simple picking up of stones. Early in John Calvin's Geneva Catechism, he instructs that we must acknowledge God as almighty and perfectly good. It's a very good Calvinist answer. But he follows that by asking if that is sufficient. The answer might surprise you. He says, By no means, because we do not deserve that he should exert his power for our assistance or manifest his goodness for our benefit. So Calvin in his catechism asks, what more is needful? And the answer is reassuring, that each of us be fully convinced that God loves him and that God is willing to be to him a father and a savior. Fitting with Calvin's catechism, I believe behind Jesus' answer, I am, lies a redemptive, covenantal answer that can fully convince us this morning that God is willing to be, and has been from the foundation of earth, our Savior. You see, Jesus' answer, I am, points to his eternal character as Redeemer of his people. For I Am is not an abstract name, as we just read, but it's the one tied to God fulfilling his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, specifically to redeem his people from Egypt. Recall that God calls this the name that was supposed to be remembered across the generations. Within the very context of John, even, this conversation, the crowd has... um, Responded to Jesus by saying that they have been slaves to no one. It's a very foolish response. Jesus turns to the spiritual import of his words. Jesus was referring to their slavery to sin. But the response is foolish because the slave, they had been slaves in Egypt. And so it's not, I don't think it's coincidental that Jesus returns back to this name that God had given them to redeem them from Egypt when just minutes earlier they had completely denied the fact that they had ever needed to be redeemed in the first place. Jesus is claiming to be the eternal God who rescued them. By revealing himself as I am, he claims his role in Israel's own redemptive history. And he goes further by claiming to have been I am even before Abraham existed. Now, Jesus didn't need to say before Abraham the very phrase I am indicated he existed before Abraham. This is added to demonstrate once again his superiority over Abraham and the prophets by showing them that he was the redeeming God even before the covenant with Abraham. For Jesus Christ to be I am... Before Abraham existed means that he was for Abraham and he was for Israel, including the Israel standing in front of him with their taunting accusations, before they were even aware of God's intent to covenant with them and redeem them. Not only has he been eternally God, but he has eternally been a redeeming God. And in some way, Abraham knew all this, and he rejoiced to see the day of Christ. Abraham, knowing the purposes and promises of God, somehow recognized the necessity of the incarnation, who from the start had been for him and his offspring. But if this is true about Abraham, and true about Israel, and it's also true about us, Jesus has been about our redemption before we existed. He's been about our redemption before we knew about him. And he's been about our redemption even in the midst of our critical opinions about his word and promises. Jesus is the one who keeps the Father's words so that all we need to do to keep his words is believe what he says about himself. This is the source of Abraham's rejoicing in the fulfillment of all God promised. And we too now can rejoice when we see God's redemptive plan for us fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All of us, from the various recesses of our hearts, ask Christ, who do you make yourself out to be? Some of us ask as outsiders to the covenant people, Perhaps you're only now hearing for the first time Christ's claim, I am. But even those of us who have trusted and walked with the Lord have mornings, evenings, months, sometimes years in which we find ourselves asking him, who are you? Sometimes we ask with tears. Sometimes we ask with anger. Maybe we ask because of a sickness, a broken relationship, An untimely death. We question who Jesus is and what he promises to do. But the answer is the same for all of us, and it never changes. The answer is found here in this text. The answer found in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and the supper we are about to take never changes. It's I am. Jesus is the eternal God who from the foundations of the world, before we even existed, has been working in and through history for our redemption. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have shared your glory with your Son, who has revealed himself and you to us. Now work in us that we would not pick up stones, but would acknowledge the true temple where our redemption has been made. Amen.